0: Hello, and welcome to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetics Society podcast with me, Dr. Kat Arney. In this episode, sponsored by AstraZeneca, we're finding out how researchers are unlocking the information hidden within the human genome using new technologies like CRISPR gene editing and artificial intelligence, with the aim of developing better medicines and getting them faster to the patients who need them. Drug discovery and development is the process by which researchers endeavour to turn bright scientific ideas into life-changing treatments for patients. But this isn't easy. It can take up to 10 years for a new drug to get to a point where doctors can prescribe it, all the way from the first idea in the lab through to clinical trials testing safety and effectiveness, costing many hundreds of millions of dollars along the way. Increasingly, This journey starts with identifying a target, finding a protein molecule inside the body, like an enzyme or receptor, that plays a role in disease, then finding a drug that interacts with it and stops whatever's going wrong. It sounds simple, right? Alas, it's not. 80% or more promising new therapeutics fail somewhere along the way, either because of unacceptable side effects or because, to put it simply... They just don't work. And it turns out that's usually because the underlying scientific idea, and therefore the target, is wrong. So in order to make better drugs and get them to patients faster, we need to find better targets that are relevant to the underlying biology of disease, not just treating symptoms. Then we need to make sure these proteins are actually doing what we think they're doing. And finally start looking for drugs that work on them. Steve Rees leads the Discovery Biology Group at AstraZeneca, where he and his colleagues are focusing on this very first step of the drug discovery journey, coming up with new ideas and targets that could lead to the new medicines of tomorrow.
1: So the choice of the target in a drug discovery project is the most important decision that we make. The target is the protein. It's normally an enzyme or a receptor that we choose to take into a drug discovery program to find a molecule that will either activate it or inhibit it to result in treatment in disease. So taking an example that most people would be familiar with, so everybody who's had hay fever takes a medicine that's called an antihistamine. The medicine in there is a small molecule that binds to something called the histamine receptor. That receptor is found on immune cells in the body and in essence it switches off that receptor to stop the inflammation response. That receptor, the histamine receptor, is what we call the drug target, the target of the medicine that results in the treatment for the disease.
0: So why do we actually need to find more targets? Have have you not got enough?
1: So our primary drive isn't necessarily to find more targets, it's to find better targets. It's to find targets which, if we can take them through the drug discovery process, we'll be able to find a medicine that works in disease. So a fundamental challenge facing the entire drug discovery industry is that many of our medicines fail, and those medicines fail when they reach a phase two clinical study. And that's the first time that we test a medicine in patients to ask the question, does it work in disease? Most of the time we get that wrong, 60, 70, 80% of the time we get that wrong. And the reason we get that wrong is because we don't fundamentally understand disease. And perhaps more importantly, we don't understand the differences within the same disease. And taking lung cancer as an example, 20 years ago, we believed there were three types of lung cancer. Today we know there are 40 different types of lung cancer and each of those different types of lung cancer may require a different medicine.
0: And so how have we found these targets in the past?
1: So for most of the last 25 years and certainly since the sequencing of the human genome, the approach that we've taken is we have a receptor or an enzyme that we've identified and we ask the question... Which disease is this receptor or is this enzyme involved in? And that involves things like understanding which tissue is it expressed in. So if it's expressed in the heart, maybe it's a target for heart disease. If expressed in the pancreas, maybe a target for pancreatic disease and on and on. And we then do research science to try and build evidence that says that yes, this target is expressed in disease. The change that we're now moving towards is to turn this paradigm on its head. And we start with disease and we work backwards from the patient to ask the question, Which targets do we see that have changed in the patient that we could potentially take forward to find medicines for?
0: So what's changing now? How are you trying to find these better targets? So
1: what's changed over the last 20 years is the technologies that have been available to us to really understand disease better. And this starts with the patient, understanding what disease looks like in the patient through being able to identify patient tissue. And the biggest transformation has been the advances in sequencing, the ability to sequence all the genes in the genome. And it's possible today to take skin cells from any one of us, tumour cells from a cancer patient, and sequence the genes of that tumour. And we can do it for less than about $800. 20 years ago, that cost $100 million. We can now do it for $800. And what that allows us to do is to understand which genes are changed in which disease state, to begin to understand two things. Firstly, how disease varies across different people but also to understand which genes are changed, so which drug targets are changed in that disease that we could try to find medicines for.
0: So let's talk about how you're trying to use this information to find better targets. I mean, how how does that actually work? How do you go from all this information about the genes that you have in patient tissues to actually then finding better targets?
1: So the major advance in recent years has been our treatment of cancer. So cancer is largely a genetically driven disease. It's caused by changes in genes within cells that cause that cancer tissue to develop. So by taking cancer tissue from patients, we can sequence that cancer tissue. And we can ask the question, for all of these people who have lung cancer, what are the genes? What are the genetic changes that we're seeing in those patients? And how do they relate to disease? And that allows us to say, well, in this particular group of patients, we know that this particular protein has changed it's mutated, it's become more active, or it's become inactivated. And that leads to the hypothesis that if we found a drug that either switched that protein on or switched that protein off, it would have activity in disease. And this is one of the reasons, or the primary reason, why the field has now been so successful at delivering cancer medicines into the clinic, because we now understand what cancer looks like at the genetic level, at the patient level. We're able to develop drugs against those targets that are changed in the patient. And most importantly, through the advances in what's this so-called precision medicine or diagnostics, we're able to identify the right patient to give the medicine to where it works.
0: So let's drill into this process even more. So you identify, you know, a molecule, a protein, a gene that you think is really important in this disease. It's changed in the disease. You're like, right, we're going to develop a drug against it. How can you be sure that that is actually the thing that you think you've got, that it is actually involved in it? How do you know that the gene that you found is really doing what you think it is in the disease?
1: Well, as always, you can never be completely sure. But the methods that we would use, again, taking cancer tissue as the example, is we would do experiments in the laboratory where we would introduce that mutation into cells in tissue culture, as we call it in the laboratory. And we ask the question, what does that change cause those cells to do? If that change causes the cells to grow faster, or maybe that's some evidence that actually this is a change that leads to cell growth in cancer. We then have methods in the laboratory where we could take that same gene And we could delete it, we can turn it off, we can remove it from cells and ask the question, what happens when we do that? And we tend to work through a series of experiments, both in cell models, as we call it in the laboratory and culture, then moving potentially into disease models in other organisms, maybe including the likes of transgenic mice, um, whereby we would ask the same question to try and understand the role of that change in those so-called model systems to just build up a body of evidence that tells us that actually, yes, if we are able to find a medicine that acts at this target, it's likely to work in disease.
0: And this seems like very sensible. And in some ways, like, well, this seems a very obvious thing. And why hasn't this really been done before? Because we've had things like knock out mice where you can take yeah. out genes and things like this. So what's really changed?
1: So it has been done before. But for me, there are three or four major technology advances in the last seven or eight years that have transformed our ability to validate targets. The first we've already discussed, the ability to sequence a genome for just a few hundred dollars, completely transformative in terms of our ability to identify genes associated with disease. The second is the development of CRISPR. So many of us have heard of CRISPR on the news. CRISPR was identified eight years ago. What CRISPR allows us to do is to specifically turn on or turn off any gene we choose in the genome of any cell. And that allows us to ask the question, what happens to this gene if it's turned on? What happens to this gene if it's turned off? And how does that relate to disease? And those are experiments that A-level scientists can now do today. The third, of course, is big advances in our ability to manage and interpret data we're now able to use artificial intelligence knowledge graphs to take all of this data, to take the world's data... And ask the question, if I survey the entire world's data, if I survey all of AstraZeneca's data, what does that tell me about which genes could be involved in disease? And When you bring those three technologies together, we have an incredibly powerful engine that allows us to generate new ideas, new hypotheses that we simply couldn't do before. And then, of course, we now have the experimental methods in the laboratory that allow us to test those hypotheses and to test them very quickly, again, in ways that we couldn't do even three or four years ago.
0: One of the things that amazes me about biological research in the past few years is the scale of automation. And, you know, during my PhD, I tried to knock out one gene very unsuccessfully over several years. And now you're able to do you know thousands and, and there's robots and all kinds of things. What sort of scale are we talking about now of, of being able to try different ideas and, and check out different targets?
1: Again, at a scale that was unimaginable a few years ago. I mean, in my early years in the industry, I cloned a gene called the 5-HT5A receptor. That took 12 months. In the lab today, we could clone that receptor and it would take about four hours. And that's due to advances in the technologies that we have available to us. But, you know, picking up on your question. So we have been incredibly interested in this science of functional genomics. And what we do there is we have this technology called CRISPR. And rather than just deleting a single gene, we have 20,000 CRISPRs. And each one of those will delete a different gene in the genome. And those CRISPRs are aided to something called microtiter plates, which is about the size of your iPhone. And in a single microtiter plate, we're able to do 384 separate experiments to ask the question, what happens to the biology I'm interested in if I delete 384 genes? So you scale that up to 20,000. Take an example of the sort of experiment we do in cancer. We're very interested in what leads to resistance to our medicines. So if we have a cancer medicine, it's been uh, in the clinic to treat lung cancer, the way that we do that is that we take cells in the laboratory that we believe are good models of lung cancer, we take our CRISPR technology, and we run what we call a whole genome screen that allows us to delete each and every gene in the genome of those cells on a one-by-one basis. And the question we ask is which genes that when we delete them using that CRISPR technology, allow those cells to grow in the presence of that medicine. Those genes then represent potential new targets in lung cancer, which allow us to run a new drug discovery project to identify a molecule that inhibits that new target which we believe we could then use to treat patients who are resistant to the original medicine.
0: So that's one example of something that you're trying to do. What have you done so far? Are there any success stories that have come out of this kind of approach?
1: Well, the science is very early. It's only in the last year or two that we've been able to run these functional genomic screens using libraries of CRISPR reagents. So in terms of success stories, our successes today are new projects entering AstraZeneca's drug discovery portfolio that have been discovered using this approach. And we're now in a situation where around about a quarter of our new projects originate from ideas that we've generated internally in AstraZeneca, using these various different methods to identify new targets to move into the portfolio.
0: You've talked quite a bit about your approaches in cancer, but obviously other diseases are available. So does this kind of approach work in other diseases? What sort of conditions are you looking into?
1: So this is the real power of these approaches in that they work in any disease and every disease Taking functional genomics as the example, all we need to run a functional genomic screen is a cellular model that we believe is predictive of the disease state. So in our laboratory today, we are running functional genomic screens to identify new targets in chronic kidney disease, in heart failure, in a variety of different lung diseases, and also in CNS diseases as well. So potentially, these methods allow us to better understand any disease and to bring forward new targets across the full range of diseases that are affecting each and every one of us.
0: So bringing all of this together, what are the benefits of finding more targets, better targets? How is this going to change drug discovery? And then ultimately, what's this going to do for patients?
1: So in terms of patient benefit, this will lead to more medicines, this will lead to better medicines and combining these technologies together, it will lead to a situation where we only ever give a medicine to a patient where we have high confidence that that medicine will work because in essence we tailor that medicine to the specific disease that that patient has had. From a pharmaceutical industry perspective, drug discovery perspective, if we're successful we will significantly reduce the failure in phase two clinical studies it should also reduce the timelines to take new medicines to patients. So taking these various innovations together, our aspiration is that we can make more medicines, we can deliver those medicines faster, and we can do that at a cost which is significantly lower than the cost that we do today.
0: Steve Rees from AstraZeneca. And if you want to find out more about CRISPR and how it works, just go back to our previous episode on the history of genome editing. You're listening to Genetics Unzipped, the Genetic Society podcast, sponsored by AstraZeneca. Find us online at geneticsunzip.com and on Twitter at GeneticsUnzip. And while you're at it, why not tell a friend so more people can discover and enjoy the show? Increasingly, as Steve explained, the first inklings of an interesting new target are coming from genomics, trawling through billions of letters of DNA from hundreds or even thousands of people in search of genetic variations that might be linked to disease and could point towards an exciting new target for drug development. And importantly, identifying the right patients who might benefit from them. David Goldstein is a professor of genetics at the Columbia University Medical Center in New York and chief advisor for AstraZeneca's Center for Genomics Research, providing advice on how best to turn the complex information within the human genome into insights that can lead to better targets and therefore better therapies. Given that last year saw the 20th anniversary of the draft sequence of the human genome, I started by asking David how far we've come in unlocking the potential of genomics in how drugs are developed and used.
2: I would say that some things have moved faster than many expected in terms of the application of genomics clinically and in drug development, and some things have moved more slowly. So one of the really exciting developments is that we really now can systematically trace down the causes of disease and strongly genetic diseases. And that's really turned into a remarkably powerful clinical application. I think it's also fair to say that genetics has had a more modest impact on drug development so far than we might have hoped. My own orientation is that that is probably set to change. The economists like to talk about a kind of J-shaped curve in the impact of innovation. And I think that probably applies in terms of genomics and drug development, where we really needed to figure out how to effectively use genomics and drug development, and it wasn't an easy thing to do. And I would say that the focus of how to use genetics and genomics is shifting from the idea of using it to kind of discover and validate targets towards the idea of using omic approaches to elucidate targets, really understand better where to apply therapeutics in what disease areas as opposed to really pointing the way to a target that no one ever thought about before.
0: So let's start unpacking this a little bit. So how much of the genome do you think we really have explored in terms of this kind of finding targets, understanding diseases? You know, we know some of the big genes for disease, like cystic fibrosis, you know, we know the cystic fibrosis gene. But how much else of the genome have we really started to get to grips with?
2: Well, we know a little bit about most of the genes in the genome. Some genes, of course, we know a lot about, but we know at least a little bit about most of them. We have information about Where a lot of genes are expressed. We have genetic association evidence for lots and lots of genes, connecting them to both rare diseases and to common diseases. I think the real challenge now is trying to really work out what all the information we have is actually telling us about exactly how specific targets are relevant to what diseases. So I would say it's really now a matter of effectively leveraging the really complex emerging data sets that we have.
0: So now, given where we are in terms of the genomic data that we have access to and the technologies that we have access to, how are you starting to really mine this information to find new targets, to find the genes that are relevant in disease? How do you go about it?
2: So I I think I would actually reformulate it a little bit. And, you know, I think we need to move a little bit away from the idea of finding novel targets and validating targets. And I, I do think we need to move more towards the idea of elucidating targets to understand how to use them therapeutically. And of course, one way to put that is we know almost all the genes in the genome that encode protein. And as I was saying earlier, for a lot of those, we know something about them. And you're really not frequently now gonna be in a situation where somebody performs a genetic study and ends up with a contribution to drug development where the genetics points to a target that people hadn't really thought about and the genetics tells you exactly how to modulate that target. That does happen, but it really is very much the exception. Instead, what we have is really bewilderingly complex data showing that certain genes go up a little bit in expression in the context of a disease state, or they go down a little bit in expression in the context of a disease state, or certain genes have modest associations for a range of different complex traits and very strong associations for a range of different Mendelian ones. And you have to actually sift through all of that and decide what the right indication is for modulators of those targets. So I really think it's becoming much more of a data analysis and interpretation challenge in order to figure out really fundamentally the right indications to consider for modulators of specific targets. We know about lots and lots of targets that are connected to a whole broad range of phenotypes, but you have to actually guess right in terms of where to test them because the trials are very expensive to run. So you need to decide for a particular target. Do you want to go after heart failure, chronic kidney disease, and once you decide whether you want to go after these broad indications, you have to think about the appropriate way to stratify these highly heterogeneous conditions. For a given therapeutic, it might be generally applicable in that disease area, or it might only be applicable to individuals with a particular underlying cause of disease. And those I think are the ways in which we have to figure out how to use genetics. And we really are only at the beginning. I mean, it's really striking to me that we are still running trials in diseases we know are massively heterogeneous, like heart failure, like chronic kidney disease, like many, many others. And we are really not stratifying those populations in meaningful ways. And it's almost a certainty that many of the treatments we're considering will work better in subgroups than others. So that's really a, a, a primary focus, I think going forward needs to be.
0: So what do we need to solve this challenge? Obviously, you know, lots and lots of genomic data is one and clever computers are another. So what really needs to happen to put this together?
2: One thing that needs to happen that's obvious is that we really need to have large paired data sets for patients that combine genomic and clinical data. Right now, by and large, patients are enrolled into clinical trials without reference to underlying genomic data. Lots of genomic data are being collected as part of clinical care. But by and large, when you look for patients for trials, it's not done as a function of underlying genomic data, and it needs to be. Even if you're not considering a treatment that is targeted to a genetic form of disease, it really is a very reasonable expectation that many treatments will work better for some subgroups in comparison to others. And if we ignore those underlying stratifiers, we won't discover those connections. And so, what I would say, you know, a very obvious, really quite urgent priority is to develop the data sets that would allow trials for common complex diseases to be run in a way that is stratified. So I would say that that's one really high priority. The other, of course, is really generating an effective data commons so that we can really understand connections between genes and complex human phenotypes. It's not just, is this gene involved in a disease? It really is, how is the gene involved in a disease? And how can we make effective use of omic data to tell us that and really figure out the right ways to think about modulating targets in different disease states. That's that's really actually, I think the biggest challenge we face
0: I've always described it as the black box between genotype and phenotype, you know, what genes you've got, what variations you've got, and then how you actually come out and the impact that it has on your health. And what sort of data can we now get access to that helps us to open that black box? Because genomics is one, but you talk about this sort of idea of multiomics. like what, what sort of information do we need about people and their genes and their health to start really figuring out what disease is actually like?
2: I think it's clear that we really do need to go beyond looking at inherited genomic variation. We really need to think about systematically characterizing all the omic levels that can be systematically characterized. And we need to do that in a variety of disease contexts. As perhaps the most obvious example, we now are actually quite good at characterizing cell-specific variation in gene expression. And that gives us a lot of information about how genes are connected to disease. And we clearly need to really dramatically increase the amount of gene expression data that we have for patients at different stages of disease. It's not good enough to just look at gene expression late in the course of disease because we have really no way then of unpacking which are the expression changes that influence disease development as opposed to secondary changes that are the result of having disease that actually are of no utility in therapeutic interventions. So certainly one of the things that we need to do is really get much more systematic about generating gene expression data. But I would also say that wherever we can make comprehensive characterizations, we need to. And, you know, that increasingly applies to metabolic uh, proteomic data types. And really right now, we've gotten to the point where we really can think about sequence variation systematically and try to relate that to phenotypes. We need a lot more data, but we sort of know how to do it. We need to get to that point for these other omic data types as well.
0: And finally, what gets you excited about the future? Where do you think we'll be in five years' time with the the tools, the technologies, the data sets, the advances in computing? Where do you want to be?
2: So I think the thing that really excites me the most right now is the prospect of truly having a molecular taxonomy of disease to underpin our drug development efforts. This is something that we've been talking about for a long time in the community, that genetics and other omic approaches would really finally break these very heterogeneous, very complex disease areas up into subgroups where we understand a lot more about why patients have disease and can target our treatments to those subgroups where we have a mechanistic understanding of disease. This has been the hope for a very long time, and I now see signs that we really are finally moving in that direction, and I think once we develop A really systematic molecular taxonomy of disease, it will give us pointers to targets that are relevant to the different subgroups of the different complex diseases. I think that's what's exciting and it's why I think we might be finally moving towards the steep part of the J curve in terms of genomics really making a contribution to drug development.
0: David Goldstein from Columbia University Medical Center. The kind of datasets that David was talking about are growing ever larger and more complex, taking them far beyond the capability of a human brain or even a simple computer to analyse. So it's lucky that alongside the exponential rise in genomics and all the other omics, we've seen a similar expansion in computing capacity, with the development of sophisticated machine learning algorithms and artificial intelligence, or AI as it's more usually known. Dave Mikhailovich is Vice President of Precision Medicine at Benevolent AI, a technology-based drug discovery company that has teamed up with AstraZeneca to smoosh all this data together, figuring out what might be going on in disease and homing in on the best targets for new therapies. So just how much data are we talking about here?
3: What is amazing is really the scale, the the depth and the breadth of the information we're confronted with. So the multiple evidence streams of information which are coming through into computational systems that we have to deal with. I think there's a really nice kind of paraphrasing quote from Douglas Adams that around space, how big it is. I think biological space is big. It's really big. You know, it's just vastly, hugely, mind-bogglingly big around what we have to deal with. And I think if you think about what data we're handling now, it's like large patient cohorts with deep clinical phenotyping information, genetics, both the kind of genotyping and sequence information, Epigenetic data that tells us how genes are regulated, expression data from RNA-seq, now single-cell RNA-seq, and then outputs from functional genomic screens, so genome-wide CRISPR screens that Steve may have talked about earlier, proteomics, metallomics, microbiome data as well. So it's really you know vast amounts of biological data from different evidence streams that we need to bring together. And I think each of these evidence streams, is a, a depth and scale that requires significant resources to manage the data, analyse and present these results. So each of these data streams really needs kind of individual teams and departments to analyse it and that this has a tendency to cause data silos, really. And I think when we want to really understand human health and disease, we really need to bring all these different data streams together and to understand the real kind of jigsaw of disease mechanisms and ultimately select our right targets. And I think given the scale of the data, there's only really one way forward, which is really using advanced computational methodologies like artificial intelligence and machine learning approaches to really develop knowledge graphs over this space and surface the clinically relevant findings from the data.
0: And that's what I always say about genetics. You know, it's not just about the genome. It's not just about what you've got. It's what you do with it that counts. It's about understanding Absolutely. all these these outputs and putting them together to build a picture of what's going on in, in biology, whether that's at the level of a cell or of a tissue or of an organ or, or of a, a whole person. And it, it's really complicated. And I kind of want to find out a bit more about what's actually changed in terms of the computing tools. What's changed in terms of the technology we have that enables us to even handle, process, smush together these very complex data sets?
3: Where we're seeing real advancements now is what people are describing as deep learning. So these massive neural networks so kind of almost recapitulating how our our neurons work in in the brain and requiring a large amount of computing power underlying these things. And the difference here is actually we can provide these tools with much more raw data, as it were, and they will find the patterns within that data and surface those. And I think that's the really exciting area uh, in the field at the moment. I guess those are, you know, it's great having those those tools, but you obviously have to aim it at something, you know, and, and the approach we've taken at Benevolence is to develop what are called knowledge graphs. So these are ways of representing relationships between different entities, different data types, you know. And you know, for us our our knowledge graph is built up on entities related to human health and drug discovery. So we have entities related to disease, so list of disease terms entities which relate to genes and proteins, entities related to drugs, biological processes, cell types and tissues. And we generate this sort of network of relationships based on causal information, so functional information that may link a gene to a disease, you know, through a knockout experiment or expression data or a genetic signal, for instance, or a drug to a gene in that that drug would act on the protein that that gene produces.
0: So you're kind of saying, all right, we've got some data that is, here's a load of genes and, you know, here's some effects when these genes are on or off or present or missing. We've got a load of diseases, we've got a load of processes like inflammation or fibrosis, and then we've got a load of drugs that we know work in this way or that way. And you're, you're sort of squishing it all together to see, well, what new things can we find here?
3: You make a good point there. So it's great that you've got this knowledge graph. So what do you do with that, really? And it's the ability to apply some of these machine learning tools over this. So there's a range of programmes that allow you to run what we'd call inference. You know, So you've got these relationships, but you know, can you infer further relationships based on that priori of connections, and I guess a great, a great maybe kind of more real world example of this is how we use streaming media, uh, you know, for your favourite <laughs> movies, and you you like your movies, and then you find that you've you're suggested other movies, and yeah. and that's based on a, a knowledge graph, and there the entities are you as a user, but there's lots of other users. There will be the movies. The actors in the movies, you know, the type of movies it is, um, the genre, whether that movie contains a 40 foot giant radioactive lizard, you know, all these sort of pieces that come together. And so when you say you like something, what's offered back to you is really an inference of what you may like based on that knowledge graph. really. And that's you know, some of the approaches that we take over our you know, drug discovery biology uh, knowledge graph to surface uh, kind of novel findings really.
0: I love that this is kind of like the Netflix recommender of, of drug discovery it's like you know targets in heart disease like these kind of things so let's see if we can find some more out of there.
3: Well simplistic view but these are the sort of types of approaches where we can level over that once you get the, the knowledge into this sort of framework we can do that and and you know I think we're you know certainly as a, a scientist who's often confronted with a list of genes at the end of an experiment you know it might be a sort of genetic study and you've got a list of loci to look at or You've run a CRISPR screen and you've got a set of hits from your CRISPR screen or done a phenotypic screen. You're often confronted with a list of genes and you've got to say, well, actually, which of these genes are going to be my targets I'm going to take forward? And I think, you know, we do our best to maximize the use of data in that triaging process. But I've always got that feeling I'm, you know, I'm missing some knowledge here, you know. I don't know enough about C10 or 57 or, you know, something that's a bit more abstract. And really having these tools, the knowledge graph to really surface all the relevant information as you go through these processes is so key, really. Um, and that's why I'm really excited about this space as a, you know extension of what I've been doing in the past. Really, it seems uh, you know, it's a great place to explore.
0: So what can we expect to see coming down the pipeline? It does feel like all of this is really accelerating. We're just getting so much more data. We're being able to go down to the level of single cells. We're being able to do high throughput, large scale experiments. And the computing tools are are just accelerating all the time. So what's going to be coming down the pipeline in this kind of area?
3: Yeah, so I I think... I view things in a quite pragmatic approach I don't think we're looking at you know one great big red button to hit and it's going to answer all our drug discovery needs in one go but I think we're going to see aspects of drug discovery starting off with patient phenotyping electronic healthcare record analysis uh, into genetics and genomics through into the you know the work we've been doing in the knowledge graph around target discovery being augmented and enhanced by AI and ml approaches and that's something we're, we're working on
0: this may be a bit of a cheeky question but you know, we hear a lot about AI and ML, and it's all very cool. Like, is this just a trend? Or is this actually going to be the way that we do biology now, or, or somewhere in between? But it feels like there is a, a transition in that we're actually starting from the data side of things and moving forward. Is that the way it's going to be done? Or is there still going to be a place for the sort of old school way of doing things?
3: I think we're in a transition period as we see these tools coming online and, and picking off problems. So I do believe it's a trajectory we're, we're now on. I think the important piece is having that the sort of domain knowledge and understanding how the different data types hang together and making sure we're kind of bringing that into the equation. Uh, but yes, I, I do think, you know, Coming back to the kind of earlier points around the vastness of the data that we're having to handle, this is the only way forward really, so we have to develop these approaches we have to make sure we 're not missing the key information and the, the biological signals that we we want to understand in disease so i do I do feel this is the the way forward and I think you can see it across the industry um, more and more companies have invested in AI and ml approaches both at the kind of biotech level at the pharma level, but I think I think it's really making it real so putting it into practice, making it work, um, testing, showing that the outputs we're getting are real um, and and moving forward from that. So I think that's, so yes, yes, so yes, I do believe it's a very, very forward, but I I think there's, you know, pragmatic approaches, testing, validating uh, and advancing really.
0: Yeah, I mean, the one thing I do know about data science is that it still always falls on the garbage in, garbage out. It's like, you know, we can have amazing tools, but if you're not putting in quality data, then you're not going to get quality answers.
3: Yeah. And I think that's where, you know, benevolence model is fantastic. So we have within the company deep expertise in drug discovery, different aspects of that chemistry, biology, genomics, genetics, which we are bringing together with the AI and ML scientists as well. And I think it's that augmented World where we, we're combining our, our expertise and scientific insights, really, which allows us to make sure what we do is you know, real, can be validated, and is applicable. So yeah, yeah, I think, yeah, I do think it's the way forward. But I think the best scientific advances are often at interfaces, really. And I think you know, having an inter- a well connected interface, such as that we have at Benevolent, is you know, puts us in a great position to advance this, these
0: technologies. Dave Mikhailovich from Benevolent AI. And you might be interested to know that just a couple of months ago saw the announcement that Benevolent AI's collaboration with AstraZeneca has already borne fruit, with their sophisticated knowledge graphs revealing a new target in chronic kidney disease, which has now entered the AstraZeneca portfolio. Chronic kidney disease is a complicated condition with huge unmet patient needs, so any advances in this area will definitely be welcome. That's all for now. Thanks to my guests, Steve Rees, Dave Goldstein, and Dave Mikhailovich. And thanks very much to AstraZeneca for sponsoring this episode. You can find out more about the challenges of discovering better targets in drug development in the latest post on AstraZeneca's blog, entitled Hitting the Bullseye. Just head to AstraZeneca.com or follow the link in the show notes or the page for this podcast at geneticsunzip.com. We'll be back next time exploring the genetics of giants. Discovering how some animals have evolved to be so big, learning about the hunt for the genes behind the giants of Ireland, and finding out why island life makes some species grow and others shrink, including the tiny elephants that roamed the islands of the Mediterranean not that long ago in evolutionary terms. For more information about this podcast, including show notes, transcripts, links, references, and everything else, just head over to geneticsunzip.com. You can find us on Twitter at geneticsunzip and please do take a moment to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It really does make a difference and it helps more people discover the show. Genetics Unzipped is written and presented by me, Katani. It's produced by First Create the Media for the Genetics Society, one of the oldest learned societies in the world dedicated to supporting and promoting the research, teaching and application of genetics. You can find out more and apply to join at trinetics.org.uk. Our theme music was composed by Dan Pollard, our logo is designed by James Mayall, and audio production is by Hannah Varrell. Thanks for listening, and until next time, goodbye.